All right, welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ramon. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Brea Banks. Welcome to the podcast, Brea. Thank you, Ben. I'm really excited to be here today. Welcome. Am I doing that right? Is it Brea or Bria? Brea. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, right on. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast of the territories of the Tlaman, Comox, Kalehus, and Homoko First Nations. Who were who share one language and I think we're one community before we uh, settlers came in and separated them into reserves. So I kind of reached out to you because I I found I was just kind of kind of trying to expand a bit into sort of you know outside of my field a bit um, and uh, and start, start connecting with others. I had uh, I was talking to you a bit before we started. I had a, had a guy on yesterday, Doctor Evan August, and he said something to me that really resonated. And uh, I'd love to kind of see it, this kind of, you know, flourish in some way over time about kind of how all these sort of different social science disciplines, um, you know, psychology, social work, counseling, behavior analysis, there's a few others, how these are kind of artificial sort of borders we've kind of created between ourselves, you know, and that, you know, does because we're talking a lot about the history of psychology and the history of, of, of black psychology um, um, and, uh, you know, and kind of how racism has really informed so much more of psychology than I realized um, from the very, from, from its very beginnings. Um, and then sort of how uh, 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 ABCI, the Association of Black Psychologists um, is, was created and, 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 you know, and, and it's a completely separate entity from sort of the APA and kind of talked about all the reasons for that, which made a lot of sense. But then he also talked about kind of how, you know, even psychology itself was just, is, is a thing that sort of, you know, the Western world kind of made up, you know, and, and it, it had been around for, it's been around for centuries, you know, um, just was never called psychology, you know, in a whole bunch of different ways. And just kind of made me think about sort of initially kind of the reason for me to start kind of reaching out to folks outside of our field, you know, was A, because I think we're a bit insular and we need to sort of listen to, some, you know, get some new different perspectives. Um, but B, because we have to work with sort of all these different professionals often in, mm-hmm. in teams and whatnot. And, but I kind of like look at I, I, I kind of like this idea of, of looking at like we're all we're all on the same team we're all trying to you know make people's lives better and and uh, and uh, you know and it's all you know mental health yeah. generally speaking um, so so I just feel like now now I'm just talking to talking to more <laughs> more people on my team which which which, which I think is fun um, and and I'm gonna stop kind of thinking about it from on on, on in terms of disciplines, which also means I can really start interviewing people from all walks of life. I think I think that's going to be fun. So it's just been it was just an interesting realization uh, uh, for me. Well, uh, I, I think that's an interesting point too. Really quickly, because I think yeah. that when you think about sometimes the lack of interdisciplinary work that we do, um, I think a lot of that is founded in, in whiteness and yeah. just the way that. Um, you know, Western society has sort of set us up to feel that like all of us are doing separate work when at yeah. the end of the day, it's the, like you said, the common goal is like helping people and 
I think more specifically for me, um, being a trained as a school psych, a pediatric psychologist, right? Like helping children and adolescents, mm. um, then really we should be aiming to work more collaboratively, um, yeah. in more of an interdisciplinary way. So I think that point that, that he brought up is a really good one. Yeah. Well, and even like my, uh, kind of my supervisor, he talks about, um, you know, sort of a different disciplinary teams. So he talks about multidisciplinary mm-hmm. teams, which is just sort of a bunch of different people doing their own thing uh, on a team. <laughs> uh, interdisciplinary teams where, you know, there's a bit of interaction. And then transdisciplinary teams and where, you know, I think which is kind of what, what Evan was talking about, you know, where we're, you know, we're all together. We're all in this for the same reason. And, you know, this isn't the behavior analyst's role. This isn't the psychologist's role. This isn't the social work's role. It's all our role together um, to, you know, make this kid's life better, whoever we're kind of trying to support. And, uh, yep. yeah, yeah, you're, you're right about, I just I think about sort of government, like in, 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 I'm not sure how it works in the States, but in, in, in Canada, we have government departments are all called ministries. Um, mm-hmm. just interesting in it itself. It's another, <laughs> another, another philosophical conversation for another day, but, um, but they don't work together at all. And so, you know, we have a, a kid who's getting support from the ministry of children and families, you know, but there's a lot of things that the ministry of health should be involved in. There's a lot of things the ministry of education be involved in. Um, we elected them all at the same time, but none of them at all work together. All their systems are all whatever. And it's probably the same everywhere. Uh, yep. But, but again, it's, I think, yeah, I, I feel like, again, this is something that, you know, that, that, that I'm seeing more and more about how colonization obviously affects, you know, you know, minority groups and marginalized folks and whatever, but it actually affects everybody. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes everybody's life pretty crappy. Um, um, and, you know, I think if, if, if people started kind of realizing that, maybe we'd make some changes. But, uh, you know, it's this whole, I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know a lot about these deep, big ideas. But, um, you know, working together doesn't seem to be a, you know, a, a crazy thought. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem to be. And I, I think about the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and, one of the things that sticks out to me that um, that she's offered um, is that like if we're really aiming to target and make better, improve the livelihood experiences of the people who are most oppressed, yeah, um, then everybody benefits along the way. Um, so if we're just like really being intentional about examining the structures um and how oppression shows up in the daily lives of the people who like are getting it worse mm-hmm. you know the worst then we're really gonna um make important social change for everyone so you know i, I think you speaking on that um crenshaw was really coming up for me mm-hmm. yeah cool who, who is she yeah, Kimberly Crenshaw, I think when folks use the term intersectionality nowadays, I mm. think that's a term that kind of gets gets tossed around back and forth. And I think sometimes we don't always have the best understanding of, of what that is and, and what it means. But yeah. um yeah, Crenshaw is 
um, a, a legal scholar um, okay. who initially um, wrote on intersectionality from the perspective of Black women in particular. So, mm. yeah. Right on. And is she yep. still kicking around? Or? Very much active. Yeah, very nice. much active. Right on. I forget. I think I forget the name of the organization that um, she's working under now. And I think like she's the she's leading it. Um, but yeah, very much still active. Um, yeah, important scholar who's done a lot of work and and a lot of work that has really impacted um, um, folks from a scholarly perspective, but also thinking about everyday lived experiences that people have. Cool. Have to check her out. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, well, we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, uh, you know, what, what your research mostly focuses on, on, on microaggressions. Looking forward to kind of diving into that. I think it's a term we, we're hearing a lot more in the last couple of years. Um, you know, we're hearing lots of terms, a lot. Uh, we're hearing a lot of new terms in the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, new, new to, new to folks like me anyway. Um, and, uh, um, and I think it's, you know, it's a term that's starting to kind of maybe lose a bit of steam or lose, lose a bit of power anyway, kind of starting to remind me of like, just like, like, like the word woke, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, and those sorts of things are starting to kind of get pushed aside with that. It's like, uh, you're just you're just labeling stuff now for the sake of labeling stuff. It's sort of, you know, I think that that message is kind of coming out. And and I'm talking from, you know, generally predominantly, um, you know, the 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 white uh, yeah, patriarchy and whatnot. But uh, but they still got they still got loud voices and they're able to to push things away. So I'm looking forward to kind of diving into kind of what these things really are, what the origin of these, these, this term is and kind of what it's all about. And also, but also really about how I, I really like about your work is it's not just, you're not just sort of talking about what they are and how they're formed and whatnot, but you know, how they really, how they really affect people. Um, That's and, right. uh, everyone wants to have control of their life to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three tier words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is microaggression. Forgive me if I'm crossing... um, your research with Evans that I was reading as well yesterday, who's did a couple papers on microaggressions, but 
there mm-hmm. was a connection to PTSD and stuff. Is that your work? Not mine. Okay, that was him. But then. yeah, maybe very relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just sort of, you know, um, he. I think one of his papers was it, it was just talking about sort of uh, this link between like, you know, one one microaggressive experience can actually, you know, evoke PTSD symptoms, which is pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so anyway, looking forward to kind of diving into that more. Before we do that, I wouldn't mind just hearing a bit about kind of your your kind of story, how, how you kind of got into psychology, how you got in the field, and what yeah. led you to be doing doing this particular work. Yeah, um, I'm gonna take it back a little bit. Yeah, just give you as full of a picture as I can. So, awesome. um, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. And um, grew up playing basketball. Um, was fortunate enough to earn a scholarship um, at Illinois State University, and so I played Division One basketball throughout college. Nice. Um, and during my high school days, I, um, <clears throat> I think this was my senior year, got to engage in this really cool experience where, um like for one class period throughout the day, um, I think this was in the spring semester, I got to go to this school um, that served kids um, with developmental disabilities, such as like Down syndrome and autism. Hmm. And um, that was really my first experience working with um, disabled kids and um, loved it just like Hmm. looked forward to being able to do that. I don't think I went every day. It must've been like two days a week or something like that, but look forward to it, formed really good connections with the kids there. And just like found a love for like, you know, working with kids with disabilities at that time. Um, Came to college, um, loved psychology. I had taken AP psychology in, 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 in high school. And so I just said, okay, I'm gonna do a psych major. Um, was busy playing basketball most of the time in college. And so mm. didn't get a ton of, you know, of the traditional psych major uh, experiences, you know, psych majors who know they want to go on to grad school. They do all the things. They do all mm. the internships. They join all the research labs. Mm. I wasn't doing that because our basketball our basketball team was pretty darn good. Mm. Um, and there just like wasn't a lot of space for that. Um, yeah. And so my... My fourth year in college, I did five years um, undergrad. My my fourth year in college, I was in a class, and it was called, uh, I think, Behavior Disorders with Children. Right. And I was doing really well in that class. I really enjoyed it. Um, And one day I was in the professor's office for office hours about whatever, and he asked me, he said, you ever heard of school psychology? Hmm. I said, nah, what's that? Um, and he says, well, go check out this website, the NASP website. Mm, and so I right. went and, and took a look. Um, from that time, before then, I just always assumed that I would just take like sports <laughs> and psychology mm. and put them together and, you know, go on a like sports site. Yeah. Um, but he introduced me to school psychology and my love for kids, for working with kids really is what pushed me into our field. And so I, I hadn't heard of school psychology at all. Um, I went to a parochial high school. Um, and so the school psychologist, if we had one <laughs> that was even associated with the high school, I never would have known who they were. I was a high performing sure. um, student academically. And so I had never even heard of school psych until I'm sitting in this class my fourth year um, in college. 
Um, and I went for it. Went for it, applied, you know, um, ended up getting in at Illinois State University um, where I did my undergraduate work. And so I stayed um, and did my Ph.D. work here. Um, the professor, Stephen Landau, um, of that behavior disorders class, who had introduced me to, to school psychology, was a school psychology faculty member um, and was assigned my program advisor. Wow. Um, so I actually went on, yeah, to work with him. Um, for research, he supervised my dissertation project. Um, he was that just a coincidence, or it, so not necessarily a coincidence? Because the faculty members, when they accept students, when we accept students into the program, um, they try to match incoming students to advisors in a way mm. that makes sense. And so, mm. because I had known him and gotcha. um, I had been talking to him, it just made sense for him to to serve as my advisor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was an ADHD guy. Um, mm. Done a, a a good deal of work. Um, on ADHD over the course of his career. And at that point, you know, he was a full professor. He was toward the end of his career and he wasn't putting any um, limitations on what students who work with him for, for dissertations could study. And I wasn't really interested in ADHD. Yeah. Um, I had come across the term stereotype threat in some literature and was sort of fascinated by it. Mm. Um, and initially thought, okay, like maybe I could do something like that. And then after reading about the stereotype literature, right, um, really went into, found out about this term microaggression mm. and was obsessed. Mm. Um, and I think that that obsession for me stemmed from like now having this word to define so many of my lived experiences as a as a black woman. Yeah. Right? Like there are all these things that I've experienced across the course of um my lifetime and particularly like my schooling and my experiences like growing up playing basketball and traveling, mm. right, with teammates and True. um I had a word for it. I had a word for it. And so I became sort of obsessed with it. And Steve, my advisor, was like, yeah, like, go off, do it. Like, let's let's go for it. Nice. Um, and so that's how I became introduced to, to microaggression. And, um, uh, you know, pretty early on in my academic career, I figured out that I wanted to be an academic. Um, and it's often the case that, like, for people who go into academia, your dissertation projects are what fuel your research agenda um, mm. as a professor. And so... Yeah, like when I think about my academic academic journey, I am um, very grateful to have an advisor who um, said, "Yo, like I'm at the end of my career, and I'm gonna support you and um, and the way that you need." And um, yeah, being awesome. able to do a project that focused on microaggression when nobody in my department, there weren't any faculty members in my department that were studying that or probably even knew what it was. At the time. And when are so, we talking? Just for. Yeah. So this would have been, um, I graduated from um, undergrad in 2010. Wow. So not long um, ago. Yeah. Not too long ago. So I graduated. I walked in the spring of 2010. Um, and then I started our PhD program um, fall 20, 2010. Um, and then probably started doing dissertation work somewhere around like 2012 ish, is what yeah. I would guess. Um, so not super long ago, um, but it just so happened that the people in our department were just doing other sorts of, of, of research. There wasn't anybody really doing any, anybody that had a research agenda that was specifically focused on like race. 
example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just really, really great, grateful that um, that Steve, you know, you know, really allowed me to just explore it and do what I wanted. Is that is that not typical? Like, do do, do yeah. folks tend to sort of want you to go into yeah. their area so you can sort of build their work, kind of thing? Well, it depends, and it's not always because people want you to help like want graduate students to build their work sometimes it is Mm -hmm. um but you know when i think about like my own experience as an assistant professor i recently learned that i'm going to be promoted to to, um associate i I earned tenure and will be promoted in august but like thinking about my own experience as an assistant professor like i wanted to make sure that i was able to submit a tenure packet that had that like had a good case Right. Like as somebody that's an expert in microaggression. Um, And so I supervise a lot of doctoral research. I think like right now I've got 10 people that are on my list. Right. Like I'm supervising a lot, like probably too much doctoral research. (laughs) And one of the ways that I'm able to manage that is I say, like, if you join my lab and you want me to supervise your stuff. This is where I'm an expert and it's going to be much easier for me to supervise a project that's focused on this versus something else that mm. I'm not as familiar with. And so that I tell sense. them the way that I can best support you if you choose to enter my lab is to focus on this particular thing. Um, and so a lot of graduate students across different programs, they get accepted to labs or they get accepted to advisors. Yeah. And our program is not necessarily like that. I should mention that I'm actually... <laughs> employed I'm, I'm i'm currently a faculty member at illinois state so i did hmm. my my undergrad and my grad studies at illinois state and then i yeah. returned here some time ago as a, as a faculty member cool but our program we don't accept people by lab or or pi or professor we accept them um and then we allow them to choose who they're going to work with not just within hmm. our school psychology program but within our department largely so they can pick um so yeah a little bit different yeah, yeah. Congrats on the promotion. Thank you. That's super it. awesome. And, and, I, and I read on your Twitter, first first black woman in your department <laughs> to get promoted to to, to to associate professor. That's yeah. That's you awesome. know, it's it's so interesting. Like it's always awesome being the first, and at the same time, yeah. can be a little disheartening, right? So Absolutely. I um, have felt really fortunate. There's another faculty member in my department. His name is Greg Greg Braswell. Um, black, he's the only black man in our department and, um, and is the only black man, I believe, to ever be employed as a tenure track professor in our psychology department at Illinois State. And he recently earned, um, promotion to full professor. And so to be able to do, like, to go up for tenure, um, the same time that he went up for full just was like really cool. Um, yeah, like really cool. Um, and to be able to witness him as like the first um, black person ever to be promoted to full again, like super disheartening because like what, you know, it's 2023. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like just feeling really gracious and, and um, feeling really good that I was able to witness that for him and that I'm able to be in that position myself. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's a sign of more. And not just sort of the, That's right. you know, kind of the Obama effect, as it were. That's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if that's a thing. Um, but um, <laughs> so, so I guess Dr. Landau, because he was because he was nearing the end of his career, 
he he was like yeah whatever you know yeah and maybe, and, maybe and maybe that's just worked out well for 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 everyone I don't, maybe he wouldn't have been that way if you know you found him 10 years before or something that's right yeah and so I was surprised to hear you say that it, this was the first time you had heard the word microaggressions. Um, yeah. so, so maybe maybe we could start there with kind of, um, you know, well, I want to get into a definition, but maybe first kind of just like the history of, 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 of the term. And obviously these things, like you said, they've been in existence forever. Mm-hmm. You know, they just didn't have a name. Uh, forever uh, because mm-hmm. you know people people don't start doing stuff just because it has a name <laughs> right <laughs> things get a name because people start doing stuff so um what what's sort of the the, the history of this term and and, and yeah. why 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 did it need labeling yeah I, I, before i answer that um very specific question i'll i'll also yeah. say that i think that most like uh, for a lot of people um, I think about a lot of my students in my lab um, yeah. who are oftentimes nowadays, this isn't as much the case, mm. but they can recall the moment that they learned the word microaggression and had mm. the same reaction as me. And it was like, wow. whoa, like I finally have a word to define like this thing that's been happening in my life for so long. Yeah. Um, so I think that because the term is, is, is um, more common, more popular, that that's happening earlier for people, right? Like yeah. for most people, it's not that you're like, you know, 23, 24 years old, and you're like, oh, what's this, right? Like nowadays, it's happening much sooner. Yeah. Um, but I think the reaction for a, a lot of people is is very similar. Um, and hmm. the the person that gets the credit, um, yeah, is a psychiatrist, um, Chester Pierce, uh, who first defined microaggressions as these offensive mechanisms. Um, and so Chester. Pierce, Dr. Pierce was writing on microaggressions from the perspective of Black Americans in terms of these um, everyday lived experiences um, that they have. And this was back like in the 70s, right? Um, Back in the 70s. And so the, the term wasn't used a ton immediately following, um, but folks like Daryl Wing Sue, yes, um, in the '90s and 2000s, um, really started working on um, publishing studies and, and papers that were focused on microaggressions. And so okay. Sue is someone that gets um, a lot of credit. Has published a great deal. Um, has really helped us understand like what microaggressions are. Um, and the themes that surface in terms of how people experience microaggressions. Um, and so if, if someone were to go to like Google Scholar, right, and do a search for the term microaggression, so much work from Daryl Wing Sue is going gonna, is gonna to pop up. He's also yeah. published some books as well. Um, and so Sue contextualizes them um, in, in, a, in a way where he defines three different types yeah. Um, micro assault insults and invalidations. Um, and then there's also some work where he talks about um, the effects of micro, the different types of effects of microaggressions and, and how they impact um, folks and, and the messages that they send the people that experience them. Mm. Um, and so in my lab, 
um, my students are expected to to sort of be familiar with the work of Daryl Wing Su um, and the work of um, Daniel Salerzano, hmm. um, who takes a little bit of a different perspective of microaggressions and really maps them onto um, crit- like critical theories. Okay. Um, and explains that microaggressions are like these everyday occurrences of isms in the case of race, right? Like racism, these everyday occurrences of racism um, that at the end of the day happen because of supremacy, right? And so there's this beautiful tree. My students always say, here goes Dr. Banks talking about this tree. There's this beautiful tree fake figure um, in one of Salerzano's um, books, a book that he offered, I think, with uh, Lindsay Perez Huber, um, where he really describes and defines microaggressions as this thing that happens because supremacy is at the foundation of the issue of the of the problem, yep. and supremacy um, is at the root. I guess is what I should say. Yes, and the tree trunks are defined. Um, by macro level, institutional level problems that yep. impact groups of people yep. um, that bleed into systems like healthcare and media um, and education. Um, and because these isms are, right, like directly embedded in these systems, the individual actors within said systems are going to enact microaggressions. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we we really focus on the work of of Sue um, and Salerzano in terms of contextualizing, defining um, microaggressions, and we always give homage to the OG, Dr. Pierce, Dr. Chester Pierce, um, who originally um, defined the term. And I think I read somewhere in probably one of your articles um, that Pierce, I feel like it was like it was nineteen seventy, like I think it was yeah. the seven zero. Um, uh, and he coined the term specifically to, to black microaggressions. Like he was, he was talking specifically about that. And so when was, was it Daryl Wing Sue that sort of expanded it to sort of, you know, kind of every intersection kind of thing? That's a great question. Um, yeah. So Chester Pierce was really focused on the experience of black Americans. I think that book, the book that he initially uh, coined the term, and I think it was called the Black 70s, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. Wow. Um, and so uh, Sue's conceptualization of microaggressions really focused on race, okay. right? Like re- you're going to hear him talk about racial microaggressions. Um, and so I can't necessarily pinpoint the first person. I might want to do that. That's a good question. Hmm. I, can't, I don't know that I can necessarily pinpoint the first person who... Um, started to study and examine microaggressions that weren't just racial. Right. Um, but there's another scholar, Kevin Nadal. Um, yes. I think he's at Columbia. I could be wrong, but I, I think he's at Columbia uh, in New York. And yeah, he's all he's over written, your papers. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. he's he's written a great deal on um, microaggressions um, that are sexuality based. Okay. Right. Um, and so for example, like this book that we reference a great deal, um, it's always at the, on the left side of my left side of my desk. Cause I reference it quite a bit. Mm. This book that Salerzano and Perez Huber wrote on uh, microaggressions is titled racial microaggressions using critical race theory to respond to everyday racism. Mm. Um, and our understanding of microaggressions today just is not solely based on race. 
right? Um, there are scholars who are going to focus their primary work on race, and we understand that microaggressions occur at the intersection, meaning that someone can experience a microaggression that is both about their race and about their gender. So when we think sure. about Black women, um, Gianni Lewis, I forget where, where she's at now. She initially was at Illinois, mm. University of Illinois, I think, but I forget where she is now. Um, she coined the term, I think, gendered microaggressions. Okay. Right? Like these microaggressions that are oftentimes like based on the, the race and the gender that a person holds. So, right. yeah, like when we write in our papers nowadays, we are very specific. If I'm referencing microaggressions broadly, I could be talking about a microaggression that's based on race, gender, sexuality, ability, class, lang yeah. like language. Like I could keep going. Yeah. Um, if I want to be specific and say I want to talk about sexuality-based microaggressions, um, then it's important to use that qualifier so that folks know particularly what it is that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. And that really, is there a, is there a, is there a problem with then, you know, things getting kind of, I don't know if that, this is the right word, but like diluted or whatever, if you have sort of too mm. many, too mm. many things that could be microaggressions sort of, and I think this is sort of where, sure. where we're at right now is that, you know, uh, you know, uh, spe particular, specifically, and I see this a lot kind of in, in certainly, I mean, you would too, and uh, just working in, in the kind of with, you know, folks with disabilities, you know, we're hearing lots and lots these days about ableism. Um, yeah. And uh, people kind of talking about, I guess what I'm getting at is I, I, I see a lot of folks, a lot of white folks talking about mm -hmm. experiencing microaggressions. <laughs> and, Not quite. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but these might be like my, white folks with disabilities experiencing right. microaggressions or, or saying that they're experiencing microaggressions. And I think you know where I'm going. So maybe I can just stop trying to put this in the words. Yeah. Is, is this a problem? And, or, or, you know what I mean? No, it's, it's not at all. And so I, it's so interesting. I, um, one of the things that I love to do, one of my favorite parts of my job is teaching. And so one thing mm -hmm. that I get to do, um, is not just necessarily teaching our graduate program, but I do a lot of, um, workshops and talks, um, with folks across the country, um, hmm. with different organizations that focus on um, microaggression. Yeah. And we haven't necessarily defined the term quite yet, right? Like microaggressions are often thought of like these subtle instances um, that are, that the receiver interprets as offensive, oftentimes right. based on stereotypes. The, the perpetrator, the person saying or doing the microaggression may not necessarily view it um, as a problem. They may be trying right. to crack a joke. They may be trying to just like um, have conversation with that person. But oftentimes it's based on like this stereotype that these stereotypes that we hold about different groups and the message that they send, the, the message that the microaggression sends is that um, your lived experiences like aren't valid um, or like it's insulting. Mm. Um, and so the the qualifier that I that I really try to get folks to understand, and I think sometimes this part is hard from the racial microaggression standpoint for white folks, is that microaggressions are things that happen to people holding minoritized, marginalized identities, right? Mm -hmm. 
these identities that like don't hold power. Um, so like white people cannot experience racial microaggressions. Right. Like that's just like not a thing. Yeah. Right. But white people can experience microaggressions that are based on ability for sure. sure. I just did this training with an organization um, where we focused on age and ability and the microaggressions that people experience because of what people assume or expect of them because of um, their age or yep. their ability. Yep. Um, so I don't know that I necessarily view it as a problem. I think it's a good thing. And, I, and I, I've noticed that when I'm doing workshops or giving talks and I can get folks to understand that when I'm when I say the word microaggression, I'm not just talking about race, that oftentimes white folks, it's easier for them to enter in. Right. They go, oh, so you are talking about me, too. I'm not talking about about you when I'm referencing racial microaggression. Yeah. Like, that's not a thing for you. Um, but, if you, you know, people don't just show up in the world as their race or their gender. Right. Like we show up as all these different things, mm-hmm. um, given all these different identities that we hold. And sure, right, if an, if an identity that you hold is indeed minoritized or marginalized, then, then it is very likely that you've experienced a microaggression. Um, microaggressions are different than just like everyday insults, right, that aren't necessarily based on these identities, mm-hmm. right? And that's why they're particularly harmful. Right. So again, I think that when I've done workshops and, and talk with folks, um, it's been easier for people to enter in when I can get them to understand that like, no, um, when we're talking about microaggressions, we're not necessarily referencing things that happen to white people when we're talking about race-based microaggressions. But of course, right? Like women in the workplace, right? Um, mm-hmm. Irrelevant from race, like women in the workplace are ignored. You know, we offer ideas. Um, it, this happened a month ago, I was on a meeting and, um, I was just listening and a, co- a, a colleague who's a woman offered <laughs> an opinion about something that we should do yeah. and folks kind of shot it down. And then like 45 seconds later, another colleague who's a man essentially said the same thing. And people were like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like that makes sense. We should do that. I unmuted myself and said, I just want to make it really clear that so-and-so just said that and y'all ignored it. And then I mm. hit unmute, right? Or I hit mute again because mm-hmm. that's what happens. Women in the workplace experience that sort of thing all the time. We're expected to be the people to take the notes for the meeting or to yeah, make sure yeah. that there's food and coffee available. Yep. Um, so I think when I've been able to enter space in a very long-winded way, it's been a long time. I've said this several times. When I enter spaces, and folks can better understand that microaggressions aren't just this thing that's relevant to race. Um, it's easier for people to enter into the conversation. Yeah. It reminded me of something I had another guest say, and they were talking about uh, how they couldn't tell if they were being I don't know if it was microaggression specific, but they couldn't tell if they were being discriminated against because they were a woman or because they were black. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and kind of, you know. It's probably both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> More than which, likely, it was probably both. Which, which is, leads me to where, where I was wondering about it possibly being a problem is, is where, I mean, obviously, you're, to your point, you know, the white folks, well, not obvious everybody, but the white folks, 
wouldn't experience racial microaggressions. But white folks might ex experience other microaggressions and then also might then, and, and I, don't, I don't think this is a good thing, um, um, compare themselves. Yeah. To the black experience. Well, I sure. experienced microaggressions and you experienced microaggressions. <clears throat> so we the same. It's so funny because one of the um, microaggressive experiences that Daryl Wayne Sue discusses in one of his seminal works, I think this one was published in 2007, mm. um, is this example of a white woman saying, well, I understand your experiences as a white woman. Right. Like that's an example of a micro invalidation because you are um, completely disregarding someone's lived experiences as a as in this. Like, let's just say in this example, as a black person yeah. um, in in this example, the U.S. Um, that has a history of the enslavement of black people. Right. Like those two, they're, they're incomparable. Um, and so when I'm giving workshops and trainings, like I'm not going to get into this practice of the oppression Olympics, right? Like trying <laughs> to have people compare, uh, their oppressive experiences. Like I'm not necessarily going to do that. Um, and at the same time, um, if we look at the impacts of, of things such as the enslavement, um, of, of black folks in our country and indigenous um, genocide, for yeah. example, right? Like, again, I'm not about to get into the business of comparing. Um, and when folks do that, you're just, you're disregarding people's very, very much lived experiences. So yeah. um, it's just funny that, because I knew you were going to go there. And it's funny <laughs> because Sue like literally talks about that as an example of microaggression, right? Like I know what your lived experience is like because I hold this particular identity. Yes, like you do hold that particular identity. And um, I can imagine like what it's like to show up in the world holding mm -hmm. that particular identity because of course, right? Like you are microaggressed against and you know yep. there are barriers that exist for you because of that. And just because you have those experiences doesn't mean that you know what it's like yeah. to walk in my shoes as someone with a, a different identity and lived experience. Yeah. So I just think this is sort of, Obviously, for for you and in, in your field, it isn't. But for the general public, these terms sometimes these terms can really be generalized, you know, yeah. and become problematic because you're 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 like, well, I have those too, and I have those too, and I have yeah. those too, right? Uh, and so, just sort of being able to, you know, take yeah. a, take a little pause for a second and go. You know, just think about what you're saying, even even though, you know. Yeah, like, and I, I mean, I, I sort of appreciate the generalization of the term microaggression because I think, again, like as someone who went through all of high school, like having had experiences and not having been able to put a name to it, um, mm -hmm. I would have loved, I, it, it would have been interesting for me to come up in a time where I knew what that was, yeah. right? Because when you know what it is, then you're better able to act on it, right? Like the yeah. way that I respond to microaggressions today <laughs> is vastly different than mm. the way that I did, you know, when I was coming of age. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, I don't know, like I think that that piece is really important. And 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. And one thing that yeah. kind of grinds my, my gears on there, and it happens every few months, yeah. um, folks will get on and they'll be talking about some transgression um, that is indeed microaggressive. And they'll say, this isn't microaggressive, it's macroaggressive. And I'm like, this is where the generalization of the term, right, the, the common use of the term um, is a little problematic. Hmm. Um, because we haven't necessarily specified this today in terms of defining what microaggressions are. Microaggressions are these things that happen interpersonally, right? They happen between individuals, between people. Yeah. Macroaggressions, maybe I did say this earlier, are things that happen to groups. Okay. And so I think sometimes when people think about microaggressions, they think that they are only these little, subtle instances, things that don't happen that like people that things that people don't do on purpose. Yes. Right. Yes. And yes. Like those things are microaggressions. Um, but Sue talked about microaagressions that are micro assault. Mm. Like use of slurs. Uh, right. Putting swastika, right? Like yeah. yeah, like painting swastikas and other slurs places, right? Like those things seem pretty blatant. Yep. They are they're pretty blatant. Um, and so I think some people miss the mark when we only interpret microaggressions as these things that are subtle, um, not on purpose, um, minor. No, micro mm. has nothing to do with the intent or the impact but has everything to do with the fact that's a, that it's an interpersonal thing. It's a thing that happens between you and me versus a thing that impacts a larger group because of a system. Yeah. The second secret word is positionality. And of course you can see just race aside uh, English, you can kind of see how people make that mistake because you know yeah. micro is microscopic small right and macro is yeah. big and yep. and uh and you know you know me drawing a swastika or saying the n-word or something like that seems big bigger than maybe you know me you know saying black women are aggressive or something like that you know yeah. <clears throat> which yeah is you know just as bad um, and so <laughs> yep. maybe let's, you've touched on this a few times that we haven't talked about the definition yet. So what, what you, you talked about sort of these, these, these three different kinds and uh, what I, yeah. I read about those a little bit on your paper and I never heard these terms before. So maybe tell me a little bit what the different kinds of microaggressions are. Yeah. So again, this is the work of Sue. Yeah. Um, and he first talks about micro assault. Um, that often are purposeful acts, like things that people do and say um, on purpose. Mm. Um, you gave the example a minute ago, like calling someone the N-word, yeah. right? Um, even like saying, to, like, or refusing service. Right. Right, like refusing service to someone, like that's, sure. that's an assault. Yeah. Um, more blatant, on purpose sorts of things. And then you have invalidations and insults that are often harder to tease apart. Like it's it's often harder for the receiver um, to like understand the intent of the person and like yep. piece apart like whether or not it was actually micro microaggressive. Um, and insults are exactly the way that they that they sound. Like they're just like rude mm. and demeaning. Um, asking like 
uh, asking a, a Latine uh, uh, adolescent teenager, um, do your parents have their papers? Mm. Right. Like that's that's insulting. Right. Yeah. Um, versus an invalidation that really um, ignores, disregards the everyday lived experiences of a person. Um, and so like colorblindness, right? Like, mm. um, you know, people of color really need to stop focusing so much on race and just like get over it. Um, we need to all, um, as Americans band together, right? Like those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and again, like sometimes for the receiver can be harder to determine, like, was that person like trying to be microaggressive on purpose? Um, or am I just like overreacting and being hypervigilant? Mm. Um, much harder sometimes to, to piece apart in comparison to, to micro assaults. Um, and I, I've sort of defined them as things that people do and say. So they're not, it's not always that it's something that comes out of your mouth. Um, it is often the case that like, <laughs> this has happened to me. Um, my gosh, this happened to me recently, like just literally last week. Mm. Um, I was entering my building yeah. and, um, someone else was like sort of entering it from a different door at the same time. And we were both going toward the elevator. And um, they like looked at me and they hit the, um, I think they hit the down button first. Mm. Um, and maybe I said like, oh, are you going up or something like that? And they hit the down button for the elevator. <laughs> and um, both elevators were on the first floor. Yeah, and so yeah. the first one opened up and they went on the down one. Um, and then I was like waiting for that one to close so that I could hit the up button to go up to the fourth floor with my office sure. is. And so the other elevator closes and I'm like hitting the up button and it's like not working. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Like the elevator's right here. It says it's on one, like it's not opening. Yeah. And so then the other elevator that that person had just gotten on opened up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm like, what's, like, what's going on here? So I just yeah. go, okay. So I get on and they're like kind of looking at me, like, you know, just kind of weird or whatever. Yeah. And so I like hit the fourth button. I go stand in the other corner and yeah. they hit the button of the second or third floor, wherever sure. they were going. But the way I interpreted that in that moment was they weren't trying to be on the elevator with me. Yeah. Right. Like they weren't trying to be on the elevator. And so they thought when that elevator closed, they, were they just were going to be able to hit two or three. Yeah. But yeah. when you hit two or three, the elevator was smart enough to say, no, there's somebody else there. <laughs> Right. Um, but I've had stuff like that happen all the time. Get on a bus or 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 a, um, on the train yeah. and there's an open seat next to me and the person looks at it and just like decides to stand. They look me in the eye and they just decide to stand. So microaggressions aren't always things that people like say it's the person clutching their parts, yeah. you know, when um, a scary person walks by. Right. And you can imagine what that scary person looks like. Um, and then they also exist in the environment. Yeah, as one more example. They often yeah. they often exist in the environment where mm -hmm. it's about the way that the space is set up. Um, the example that I often give there is that um, there's a, a room over in our student center. Um, I co-direct our African American Studies program, and this one time we like tried to book space over in the student center for an event, and they put us in the founder suite. And I said, absolutely not, because how do you think the founder suite is decorated with a bunch of pictures of all the old white dudes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Founded this historically white wow. institution. So I said, I'm good. 
Yeah. Right? But people don't think about that sort of thing. Right? Like, what do we look like as an African-American studies program hosting an event where, like, it's decorated that way? So there are things that people do, say, and sometimes the way the, that the space is set up. Yeah. No, I was just, sorry to interrupt. I was just, uh, oh, yeah. it just, it just triggered for me, you know, a memory. And I've been pretty, you know, I talked to you before we, you know, when we last chatted about kind of why I was doing this podcast and kind of a bit of my journey. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I think similarly, not similarly, but not having a word for it, um, I engaged in, in a lot of microaggressive behavior. Of course. Yeah. Right? Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, thought I was just doing what I was taught to do, um, which I was, <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. that was, you know, aggressive. So I'm thinking you, you talked about clutching the purse. I, yeah. you know, I haven't had a lot of interactions period with, um, you know, um, black folks, but, um, growing up, but, um, um, you know, when I, when I would, and I don't even remember, you know, what the context was, but I, I definitely have a lot of memories of moving the wallet from the back pocket to the front pocket. Yep. Right. Every time I'm in kind of a downtown area, um, right. um, uh, particularly when, you know, I see a group of folks that look different, um, that I might be walking up to because, you know, I've been taught that, you know, every, Every, every black person's a pickpocket or whatever, yep. right? You know, um, and learn that probably from TV or whatever. Um, That's uh, right. Knows. Um, and, you know, there's so many. Like, I wonder how many folks, other folks have kind of, you know, obviously for, for the, for the, for the, for the, the black person, you know, having a word to describe the experience they've had all their life is pretty powerful in a couple of ways. I think one in, in, you know, just being able to have a term for it. And I want to get into kind of, because you said, I want to have a question related to that too. Um, but also I think hopefully it can be a term for folks like me, you know, to kind of realize how problematic our behavior has been all our lives mm-hmm. towards other people, you know, not realizing that these things are are, are what they are. I think, I think this is where I see the problem with the phrase micro is it, it can definitely lead folks like me to, you know, make those not seem all that important, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but you said something and I, a few minutes ago is, is that now that you have a word for it, you respond to them differently. Yeah. What, what, do, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I should be really clear and say that it's not only that I have the word for it that mm. has pushed me to respond for it differently. And okay. at the same time, um, I mean, there was a marked change for me in graduate school when I like when I did have the word for it. Yeah. Um, I felt more confident in being able to say that like that behavior was inappropriate. Mm. Right. Like, yeah much more confident um and being able to like call it out. Daryl Wing Sue talks a lot about this catch 22. Um we experience microaggression, like what do you, like in that moment, like what do you do? Right. And that person's head you're thinking like, okay, first of all, was that microaggressive or not? Am I being too sensitive, hypervigilant? Um, should I say something? If I say something, that person might think 
that I'm being ridiculous or they may respond in a way that like is stressful. Um, if I don't say something, then I have to sit with this thing. Mm. Um, and I think when folk don't have a word for it, when you don't know it's a thing, you may be more likely to internalize it. Like that's a research study, right? Like if yeah. you don't know what it is, you don't have the language, you're more likely to just like to swallow it and say like, maybe I'm just being too sensitive or maybe they just didn't do it on purpose, whatever. Right. And there's like some research that suggested like when we internalize that sort of stuff, not so good consequences versus knowing that what that person said or did was a problem. Um, Regardless of the fact, right. Like you had mentioned a minute ago that like, that you do it, everybody does it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because we're like socialized, like we're, we're exposed to certain media we're taught certain things. Yep. Um, everybody does it. Um, and so hmm. when, yeah, right. Like, so when it happens and you have a word for it and you know, it's wrong, even though it's an everyday occurrence and everybody does it, then maybe you're more likely to say that that thing that you just did or said was inappropriate or mm-hmm. it hurt me. Um, and so I had never before grad school, before I had a word for it, responded or like said that like no that's like I never did it as soon as I had that word and as soon as I started reading and I knew what was up and I had language there were instances with professors where I said no that's inappropriate and it was awkward right like giving somebody feedback in that moment right like nope like you can't ask me that question or like nope that's inappropriate um or when someone goes to to touch my hair Mm. right instead of letting them do it as I would have in high school, right? Like with friends, like touch my hair and like make comments about how it's different. True. Um, right? Like now when I feel somebody going to touch my hair, my right hand has an immediate reaction and it is slap that hand away, yeah. right? Because like you're invading nice. my personal space. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I think that now that I have language and I'm somebody that researches this sort of stuff, um, it is a rare occasion that something happens like someone says or does something and I don't say anything. There are occasions, right? Depending on particular circumstances, right? Like you have to assess harm and you have to assess like what's going to happen as a result of you, you know, mm, saying something. Fair. But yeah, yeah, like there's definitely a market change for me in terms of knowing what it was, having done research, um, and then like having words to say that this is not okay because it's this thing. It's this. Right. Like if you can't say that what you just did was this, it was microaggressive, then like, what are you supposed to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think having the language for it really matters. Yeah. And does. Um, this is really interesting. I, and, and I do want to get into your work um, uh, soon here. Uh, does kind of how you respond to it differ depending on the the microaggression or the person or whatever man like that it's such a great question right so part i mentioned workshops and trainings that i've done and um and many of them in the later half we talk about like how to respond um and there are different people who can respond Mm. there are um the person who experienced it yep there are witnesses yep um and there there are the perks 
right? Who mm-hmm. may have noticed that they did my did something microaggressive later, or somebody tells them that yo, like what you just said was whatever. Yeah. Um, and those responses like can differ depending on the circumstance, right? Like I think I tell people that you have to assess the situation relevant to harm and safety and power. Um, like you got to keep your job, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, yeah. um, I think about my kids and, you know, we live in a predominantly white community and mm. we're really intentional about spaces that we put them in. Yep. But when they experience certain stuff at school, I just, I'm not going to be able to go up there every time and say like, no, you did blah, 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 you know, mm. because they need to be able to thrive in that space. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it depends, right. Yeah. It, it depends. I think people who receive the microaggressions, um, we can't ever tell them how they should respond because like they're the people who have been harmed. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we can give them skills. I think we can give them language and tools and we can teach them coping strategies to calm down. Um, we can encourage them to check in with people who love and care about them. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the things that they say in response to them, that's everybody's own journey. I think they have to assess the situation yeah. and determine like what's best for them in that moment. You talked about your kids. Um, Cause obviously for you growing up, you didn't have a term for it. And so you, you yeah. Know, you, yeah, you probably yeah. did internalize and did have some of those experiences. Now they got a term for it and, and uh, how old your kids? They're young. So I have um, one who will be one mm, wow. uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, the middle <laughs> will be three in about a month yeah and the oldest will be five in october wow and so that's cool that's that's busy uh it's busy. <laughs> yeah i love kids uh <laughs> but uh it, 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 it's a big job so related to kind of microaggressions then maybe it's too early for your kids right now it's but not it's not no maybe not uh certainly not for the five-year-old um, yeah, maybe not for the three-year-old. Uh, thinking about sort of the couple conversations I have had with um, both some school, a couple of school psychologists, as well as some behavior analysts that kind of work in school settings, mm-hmm. um, uh, they've talked a lot about um, you know how um, you know f- really from birth, um, 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 black kids are you know, discriminated against, um, mm-hmm. you know, before birth. Like, I mean, there's, there's, um, I have someone coming on to talk about some of those, you know, black mother, black maternal experiences, you know, even, even before getting pregnant, like the whole, there's a whole line, but the moment, the moment that, that, that child is born, they're, they're born into, you know, uh, a racist world and they're going to have these experiences. And then once they get into kind of school from, you know, talking about sort of, you know, in kindergarten, you know, kids, black kids getting, you know, sent home when the white kids are yep. for doing the same sorts of mm-hmm. things. And, and this just continues, you know, for the rest of their lives. So I'm, I'm wondering how you're, and you know, it's going to be obviously different for you, but as, as, as an expert in microaggressions, uh, but how your knowledge of microaggressions is, is, is playing a role in, in how you're parenting and, and what you're teaching your kids and what, you, and, and what you're going to teach your kids about those things. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting. Again, like in the workshops and talks that I give, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I often say is like, 
um, a lot of this just like boils down to what we learn in kindergarten, <laughs> right? Like relevant to yep. appropriate behavior, like minding yep. your business, yep. um, asking <laughs> permission, like yep. using your words. Yeah. Um, and so like that's how we, my my partner and I, like that's how we like that's how we structure it. Um, we are like very big on like teaching consent. Yeah. Right. Like my my three year old and five year old right now are really big on like telling the other one that they need space, hmm. <laughs> and it's annoying, right? <laughs> and like that's important for them to be able to verbalize when they need space, and like yeah. teach the other to say, did you to say like, did you hear them say that they need space? So you need to move your body, yeah, you know, like over that. here, yeah. right? And respect it. Um. So yeah, they're like we, you know, teaching kids these sorts of things now. Um, I, I think is 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 really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to respond when someone hurts your feelings or says something to you um, that you interpret as rude, right? Like even just like simple working on coping skills and coping strategies before you respond um, is really important. Um, I think yeah. about like gender. Um, our three and five year old, like when we're out in the world, they don't gender people. Hmm. right like if they see someone they say like parson or Hmm. those people over there and if they make a mistake in gender somebody they'll like correct right away wow um or like earlier on we were like first starting to teach it um they like would gender someone and i would say like yo how do you know that that's the boy like how do you know that that person uses he him and they would sort of be stumped (laughs) <laughs> right because they're like thinking in their brains like okay yeah, like yeah, if yeah. i say that they have like short hair well like there are i have short hair yeah. right um but <laughs> like misgendering people is microaggressive right right and so we're really intentional um about exposing them to media where there are kids that are in wheelchairs and that are using other tools and devices to assist them mm-hmm. in the way that they show up in the world. And so, yeah, it's never, it's, it's to me, it's never too, too early to do those sorts of things, to expose kids and to, to be really intentional with language. What about kind of, you know, being on the receiving end? Um, I've had a lot of conversations mm-hmm. with um, Black folks, particularly black autistic folks, um, mm-hmm. um, um, let's say a lot, but a few on the podcast, um, and um, you know, talking about kind of, and it's probably I don't even know, I don't even know where the terms fall with being black and autistic because autistic folks talk a lot about masking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of hiding their behaviors in order to sort of mm-hmm. fit in the world. Um, um, you know, and I think parents sometimes will teach their autistic kids to sort of, you know, like I, for I, I, a prime example, I, I worked with an autistic person and uh, their parent taught them. Um, and I don't know if this was right or wrong, but they just did. Uh, their parent taught them not to engage in the stimming behavior, the self-stimming, the hand flapping, and kind of noise making um, in public. And so um, I would often pick this individual up at their house for sort of some after-school activity. And uh, and uh, during the whole activity, I hardly see, saw the individual engage in any kind of these stimming behaviors. 
But before I would arrive, I would hear they had a trampoline <laughs> in the backyard. And I would hear the individual jumping on the trampoline. And I would hear all, and this was a, a vocal, a lot of vocal ability. It was, you know, mm-hmm. social and whatnot. Engaging in these vocal sound, vocalizations, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, kind of guttural sounds mm-hmm. um and uh and jumping and, and and the hands flapping on the trampoline because i'd be coming around the corner and they wouldn't kind of see me on on them uh on the tr- when they were on the trampoline and kind of doing full-on doing their thing and i'd be hey how's it going and boom, fold it right yeah, in stop um because you know they, they'd sort of learn and i think we see a lot this is a lot with you know like tourette syndrome you know a lot of folks holding their ticks until they get home that sort of thing again kind of masking um and kind of covering that but then at the same time, and this is an area I know you know less about, um, and I know the two aren't comparable, um, is kind of code switching for, for black folks um, mm. in the sense. And from the little I understand about code switching, you know, it's about, you know, safety a lot of the time um, because just, just being black automatically puts you in an unsafe place all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, maybe not in, in your own home, but as soon as you leave your home. Um, yeah. And uh, and so she was kind of talking about, and I don't know whether she was talking about code switching or masking, but she was talking about mm-hmm. teaching her autistic boy how to act around police. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and so part of it, I think, was... Because because a black autistic boy, you know, is even more of a target than a black boy. Uh, that's yep. that that might not be autistic because they've got sort of a, a, the double whammy when it comes to people not having a clue. Um, and uh, kind of digressed here, but um, <laughs> what my no, question I, I was, yeah. but you know, about sort of sort of yeah, going back to yeah, so going back to you and your kids. Um, how are you teaching your kids to sort of discriminate mm-hmm. when to respond to microaggressions in one way and when to keep your mouth shut? Let it go. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the oldest is five. And so we haven't necessarily had those as nuanced talks yet, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think as a, as a school site. Yeah. 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 Um, kids are like smart, man. Like, <laughs> They like they know what's up. Like we, you know, we get kids every year that are referred to our clinic here um, that will just flat out say like I'm in trouble all the time because my teacher's racist. Mm. And like half the time, like most, like most of the time, like that's true. Like yeah. they literally are have been referred for services because their teacher's racist. Wow. Um. And so I think <clears throat> for kids, like it's it's twofold. Like first, I think it's more than twofold. I, you know, first, I think that we've got to <laughs> teach kids how to um like use like healthy adaptive coping skills um for themselves Mm. right like to get their bodies calm um i think we have to give kids language i think when people like don't have the words the things that come out are often driven by like emotion which like i said earlier like the way that the person needs to respond is, is how they need to respond and at the same time i think that more productive conversations happen when um folks are like calmer and and back to center. So I think for me with our kids, we'll teach them coping skills. Mm. Um, We'll, we'll teach them to use that kindergarten language, right. To express like how they're feeling. 
Um, and we're going to teach them to read the situation because their safety is of utmost importance, right? Like if you're in an yeah. unsafe situation, th- then like at that moment is not the time to be telling someone like how what they did or said um, was offensive to you, right? Because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, like you have to be physically safe. Um, and so like it's a it's it's nuanced. I think that um, every situation is different. I think we'll do a lot of um, scenarios yeah. and as things happen in the real world, like having talks about them and even like role playing and, you know, yeah. giving them opportunities to practice it with us, nice. I think is um, monumentally important. You know, I, I think when it comes to like masking and, and code switching, I mean, wouldn't it just be so nice to live in a world where people could show up fully as they are? Yeah. Right. Like it's really easy for me to sit in this ivory tower and say that like people shouldn't mask regardless of, of what, what whatever. Right. They should mm-hmm. never do it. Yeah. And I can think that from a scholarly perspective, because like people should get to be who they are and like people mask because of safety. Yeah. Right. Like you said it like people in like code switch because of like safety and like it may not be the case that like I, you know, I walk into my building at work and I immediately start code switching because safety, mm-hmm. but that's ingrained. It's been taught to me that when I'm in certain spaces that I should code switch because if you don't, then you are less safe. Mm-hmm. Right. So even though in each particular instance, it may not be that I'm, that, that safety is at the forefront of my, of my mind. Nonetheless, when we, when we do these sorts of things, it's because of safety. And so I can recognize yeah. that my perspective of like, feeling that people should not have to code switch and they should not have to mask Yeah, is, is very ivory power because like you said, people do it because they want to be safe. Well, I think there's different definitions of safety too, different forms mm-hmm. of safety. Obviously there's pure, when we're talking about sort of interactions with police, we're talking about literal life or death safety, but there's also safety in your job, you know? Like, That's what I'm going to say, job am security. I, am I still going to have my job if I if right. I react, you know, if I point out that, you know, because my boss is probably racist and, and and you know, I, he, right. didn't, he, he didn't hire me to to, 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 to make him any racist, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and certain, and, you know, I, I, uh, you know, there's, uh, or just even in social situations where, you know, you know, um, you know, I, I often hear about sort of how I, I've heard not often I've heard in the past about how sort of you know the way and this was just one particular group saying you know the, the way where where the way I act with my family you know yeah. um, or, or 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 with my close friends at you know at a barbecue or whatever you know is way different than I'm going to act with you when we go out for lunch today. Mm-hmm. Um, um, mm-hmm. Uh, because, because I'm, I'm so afraid. And, and I think in the past, they didn't have the term, but you know, in part, I think because there's a pretty good chance I'm going to experience microaggressions, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and two, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm afraid of, you know, that this is going to change how you look at me, you know, because, because, because you're racist, <laughs> you know, essentially because you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of judging that way. And so, you know, I've often, I don't, I don't think about it as much anymore because, you know, I don't think it's, it's going to be helpful, but I often wonder if all the conversations that I have with, 
you know, black mm-hmm. folks, if they're actually being themselves or they're being yeah. what, 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 what they want to be for me or what I think, what they think they should be around me. And, you know, that's fair. I mean, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't make them like, that's not you. Come on, switch it up. You know, uh, you yep. know, and also I can't make them trust me, you know, that that's, you know, mm-hmm. if, if folks want to trust me and, um, um, great. I hope, I hope, yeah. I hope I can exude that, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, let's get let, let, let's uh said a few times you're you're an, you're an expert um, um <laughs> why is it what is that so what what uh not why is that but what uh it sounds like there's a lot before i before we started this conversation i just thought you were you were the one you were the microaggression expert of the world um and you clearly <laughs> told me there's a lot of folks that come before, there's a lot of folks <laughs> that have come before you and there's a lot of folks still doing this work so yep. What what is your kind of focus when it comes to microaggressions? What what areas are you, are you researching? Yeah. yeah, so my dissertation study and then a, a couple of studies following that have focused on the cognitive consequences of microaggression. Okay. Um, where we have um, brought people into the lab and run experimental studies, meaning that there are folks who are assigned to a control condition and folks who are assigned to an experimental condition. Um, and there's a manipulation at play, right? Like we yeah. expose them to different things and we see what happens. And so in the context of our work on microaggressions and the cognitive consequences, we've like microaggressed against people in lab. Yeah. Um, or we've like had them watch, um, I think a, a couple of studies that we're running right now, like we have had them read a vignette and another one they're like going to listen to, um, this like microaggressive encounter. Um, or an encounter or vignette that is bland, right? Like it's not microaggressive. Right. Um, and then everybody does a cognitive task before and after hmm. and like, right, pre-post-test. And then we look at the effects of that microaggression, right? So in experimental research, it's important that everything is the same, save yes. that manipulation. And so we've yeah. done some work there which has been really fun. I remember engaging with my dissertation project that was particularly about black women. Um, We brought black women into the lab and found that there are indeed immediate, immediate cognitive consequences to experiencing microaggressions. Mm. Um, This is like really fun work because there's like this really experience. The third secret word is racial experimental nature to it and so like those of us in psychology who enjoy experimental work like it's fun being able to engage with participants in a one-on-one sort of setting um but then also because we essentially um we're deceptive right like we don't tell people the purpose of the study at the outset because that would mm. ruin it yeah, um, yeah. and so at the end when we tell them like what's up like what we were really studying we've had some really cool and engaging conversations mm. with participants about um like their own life experiences with microaggressions and how they just were really grateful um, to have been included in a research project um, like that. So one area that we focus on is the cognitive consequences. Yeah. You know, so, cause yeah, you talk about uh, uh, this cognitive depletion Mm -hmm. um, and Well, first off, what, what, um, 
I mean, it's great that in the end, I think that that really shows the kind of the social validity of it all, that they're grateful and they're happy to be included and, 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 mm-hmm. and uh, also kind of speaks to what uh, we were talking about earlier about how, you know, in the past, uh, you know, black folks were not included in research related to sort of the helping intervention. So um, and when I was talking to Dr. August, he was talking about how, um, you know, a lot of research in the past was... Um, um, you know, uh, you know, the research sort of t- to define psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. the subjects were stacked with black people, uh, and mm-hmm. then therefore the sweeping generalizations were made made about them. And then the inter- the studies around how to help these these same disorders uh, were stacked with <laughs> white people because we don't actually want to help those black people because we're going to put them in institutions and sterilize them and so on and all the horrible things that that uh, were happening and in some ways still are happening um so it's great to hear that you know uh that folks you know are, are appreciating you know being involved in the research but i'm wondering about sort of just ethically um yeah uh, you know how you get around sort of i'm going to bring someone in and yeah. uh essentially be racist towards them um, yeah, yeah. And, and then see how they react in that deception piece. It's such a great question, right? Like bring me back to my dissertation study. Yeah. So with, with any research study that occurs, right, it has to be approved by the institutional review board. Yeah. Right. So our, our university has an, an institutional review board. Yeah. And so for my dissertation project, we wrote up the proposal, submitted to the review board, and there are different levels to review. Like some studies get submitted and they get approved like in an expedited sort of fashion. Yeah. Um, other studies, there may be like little things that they have to do here and there. And for some studies, they go to the full board review, hmm. which means that there's a meeting that happens with folks who sit on the IRB and they discuss the study. They may have questions for um, the researchers and so we knew that our study was going to go to IR, was going to go to full board review. Yeah. So I remember this as a graduate student, fourth year graduate student, going into this meeting, shaking in my boots, ready to answer these questions. And um, my PI, my principal investigator, Landau, and I knew what the major question was going to be. And this yeah. is exactly what you just posed. Yeah. How are you going to bring people into the lab and like be racist towards them? Like, how is that ethically right? Yeah. And so one thing that the IRB specifies is that the that the things that we expose people to can't be outside everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. Ah, bam. So right, bam. There it is. So right when I when I went into that meeting, that's what I was able to talk through. And and most again at that time, that term microaggression wasn't as common as it is today. Sure. And so a lot of people were reading about that for the first time, and I had to explain to them this is everyday stuff. And I remember going into that meeting and saying, like, let me give you some examples of microaggressions that I experienced this week. (laughs) Right. And they were all taken aback. They're all white folks in the room. They're all taken aback. Oh, that happened to you? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, like this is a regular everyday occurrence. And so the things that we're planning to expose people to in the lab, the, the, the microaggressions that we have selected are things that happen every day, not just from my own personal lived experience. But from the work of Daryl Wing Sue, right? Like I was able to cite literature to yes. suggest that these are things that are happening all the time. Perfect. And it was approved. Yeah. And so um, because I practiced at the same institution where I was trained, 
right? Like that dissertation study was proved. So any study that I'm doing after that, it's the same sort of thing. I just have to demonstrate that that particular microaggression that we're going to enact against participants is no different than what they experience in everyday life. Harmful, right? But no different than what they experience in everyday life. And because we're going to be deceptive after the end of the study, we're going to tell them everything. We're going to tell them absolutely everything. And we're going to make sure that they have access to resources. We're going to make sure that if a graduate student is running the study in my lab, that that participant has my contact information. If they want to get in touch with me, that they can. And I've had a couple of undergrads who participated in studies and they've like scheduled a meeting with me after. And then they join lab, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, as an undergraduate research assistant. So, nice. um, yes, it's a great, it's a great question. And we thought a lot about it. We're really intentional about the microaggressions that we choose, um, yeah. to use in the research. Um, and then we make sure people are good when they leave. That's awesome. You know, and you, you kind of answered another question I had, um, in that, and in that this, so the IRB is not, sounds like it's not a very diverse group. Well, um, I mean, it depends, you know, given the institution. I mean, I, I work in it at a historically white institution. Yeah. Uh, yours are, <clears> and yeah, so I don't, yeah. yeah, so I don't, I don't know today, like who sits on the committee, but I imagine it's yeah. probably maybe more diverse, but nonetheless, it's an historically yeah. white institution. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so a part of me wondered, and obviously we can't be a fly on the wall or in, in, in their private conversations, but yeah, I, I wonder how many of those folks did a bit of, you know, self-reflection after your, <laughs> after your explanation and went, uh, yeah. we got to let this one go through because we're all guilty of this. <laughs> right. Because we're doing it. I just yeah. did it yesterday. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right on. Well, no, I think, I think that's great that you're, and, 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 and I think it also, certainly if you ever want her to do more of this work, which you keep doing, I'm sure it'll be even easier to pass through because now you also have the, the, the participants themselves saying this was great. <laughs> You yeah, know. it's important stuff. Yeah, yeah, and this this was helpful for me. So I think that's really awesome. So, yeah. what did you actually find with sort of with 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 the, the, these black women in terms of sort of the, mm-hmm. the cognitive depletion and and maybe just a bit about what cognitive depletion actually means? Yeah. Um, so in our case, we um, were interested in um, the Stroop naming task as a cognitive task, and so the Stroop most people are familiar with it, but they don't know that it's called Stroop. So it's the task where um, there's the name of a color. So like the color blue pops up on the screen. But the text of the color blue is red. Ah. And the goal, yeah, the goal of the task is to say the color red. So you're not supposed to read the word blue. You're supposed to say the color. Yes. Um, And so there's a bunch of words that pop on the screen. And it's a reaction time task. Right. And the point of it, right, so in terms of like cognitive interference, that's what this troop task measures, okay. cognitive interference. It's supposed to be easier to say the color of the text when it matches the name of the word. Sure. So it should be easier to, to say blue when blue is written in blue text yeah. as opposed to saying blue when the word red is, is written, written in, in blue text. In blue, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um, we do a little bit of math, right? Um, You essentially take the difference between for the reaction times between the two. um, And we get a cognitive interference score that essentially says this is how much longer it takes for somebody to respond when it's compatible versus incompatible, right? Mm -hmm. Like blue Mm -hmm. written in blue versus blue written in red. Sure. Um, 
And so relevant to like cognitive depletion in particular, there's research to suggest, and there's some some debate around this, and I don't think that that's where we go today necessarily. Yeah. Um, but there's some research to suggest that like when that we only have like a certain amount of resource strength, right? Like self-control, right? A person only has a certain amount of self-control. And when yeah. we're exposed to stressors in the environment, in our case, yeah. microaggressions, yeah. that gets eaten up, right? And when some of that 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 self-control that we have that gets eaten up and then we're asked to do something else, we don't have enough energy. We don't have enough space to be able to do whatever it is and other things that we're supposed to be doing. And so when somebody microaggresses against you, I wanted to know, is your self-control like resource eaten up? Is it depleted? Is something taken mm-hmm. from it mm-hmm. such that when I ask you to do this cognitive task, you're going to struggle? Yeah. Um, and so that's what we've used in lab. And we've been able to demonstrate um, that when we bring Black women into the lab and expose them to microaggressions, um, those who are exposed to microaggressions, they, their cognitive resources are depleted. Mm. Um, we ran a, another study where we did the same thing and we had Black women cope or not cope um, mm. experimentally. So there, there was a condition where like after they were exposed to the microaggression or not, um, we put a breathing past on the screen and said, okay. do this breathing activity. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for other people, we said, just sit there and wait. Um, and we found some evidence for like people who like did the breathing task, who were in the microaggressive condition, their cognitive depletion score was not as bad mm. as people who were exposed and just asked to wait. So like some evidence that like, really teaching people to like engage in diaphragmatic breathing in particular yeah. could be yeah. could be beneficial. Um and then we've also done some work where um we've exposed folks independent of race um to like these vignettes. I know it wasn't a vignette, it was a video where there's this white guy either using the N-word, um using a filler. So instead of actually saying the word, he says mm. N-word. Oh yeah. Um or just omitting the word altogether. And we found mm. evidence that for people of color, so not just black people, for people of color, when they were in the condition where they heard the actually heard the word, their performance on the street task was diminished in comparison mm. to um, white folks across the board and people of color in those other conditions. Mm. Um, so three studies where we really looked at the, at the cognitive consequences that have been published. And then I have a couple of dissertations projects underway right now um, one where we um, are looking at adolescents mm. and their cognitive responses to um, microaggressive. Wow. I think we did a scenario for that one. They read a scenario. Um, and then this other dissertation project um, that is just about to get underway um, where she's going to focus on Black women. Um, but I think she's particularly interested in like the effects of age um, and colorblindness on how they experience depletion as a result of, of microaggression. Cool. So yeah, it's pretty fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have you uh, looked at all at sort of, because it, th- this makes me think about sort of that other paper I was telling you about by that, I guess it must have been by Evan or someone else, but um, where they were linking, you know, one instance of uh, one microaggression to kind of actual post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, 
and and, mm-hmm. and I know that that's a that, again that's another phrase that's tough because folks automatically equate PTSS to PTSD um, and, mm-hmm. and those are different things um, um, and just because you have a symptom doesn't mean you have the disorder but but mm-hmm. but I'm wondering about sort of have have you looked at all of what recovery looks like so. You know, you 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 experience a microaggression. You have some cognitive depletion. Yeah. Uh, maybe you use a coping strategy or not. Uh, how long before you're back to doing the task kind of correctly again? Yeah, we have not looked at that. So the the only study where we've like even begun to look at recovery is the one that I just described, where we right. had them cope or not right. cope. Right. Right. Um. And like there, you know, there's opportunities for researchers too to examine um, not just like the immediate consequences, right? So like the the stuff that we've been running thus far really examines like what happens right then and there in the moment, mm. right? But also like what are the cumulative effects of microaggression? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How right? Like how do the coping skills or whatever things that people do every day? Um, how do they impact? the effects of microaggression, exposure mm. to microaggression mm. long term. So now nah, we we haven't gone there necessarily yet, but yeah. I'd be also interested to see um you know some collaboration with kind of neuroimaging, you know, especially like oh, the, yeah. the adolescents versus the adults and kind of how mm-hmm. you know actually seeing like brain changes when they're experiencing sure. those things. It'd be kind of weird to I was I was one and I, I know I'm digressing here but i always wonder how they do some of those studies where someone's lying inside of a tube and you know and 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 and, you know and 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 they're being exposed to things and reacting to things but you know i don't know how they account for lying in a tube as part of that but (laughs) well i mean you know relevant to microaggression and like the consequences i mean like our our lab really enjoys exploring like the cognitive consequences is it's yeah. one facet. Um, and then we've like done some work on like the effects of like workshops and trainings. Um, mm. And then like, and then the other area being like a focus on like children and adolescents. Um, but when I'm having my students conduct their literature reviews and they, and they talk about the consequences of microaggressions, we talk about the psychological, the, the, those that are related to mental health, the mm. physiological, right? Like there's evidence to suggest that like your heartbeat, Right, like raises, yeah. and there are some implications to like blood pressure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there. I mean, there are researchers out there who are engaged in the topic and not just exploring the more psychosocial sorts sure. of consequences relevant to depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress symptoms, um, but also sleep and eating yeah. and um, heart activity, right? Like there's some really cool stuff out there. Yeah. Like disease um, that, and yeah, like researchers are really kind of going stuff. for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Um, you also do some work, you know, cause let's go back to your training as a school psychologist. You've also done some work, you know, with, with school psychologists and, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and just maybe college students in general, but, um, what's, what's some of the stuff you've been finding with school psychologists? Cause I had, I had, I've had a couple folks on talking about things like, um, um, uh, well, I had Dr. Malone on and we we're talking about, um, kind of 
you know, just just not not even sort of getting. You know, there there are there are programs for school psychologists, and there's some good ones now. I mean, there have always been some mm-hmm. good ones, but some good some 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 ones in in, in more of the kind of the the the, the, the HBCUs and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So that you know, there there's you know, kind of a, a, a safer space, I guess, as it were, to sort of you know learn learn the trade. Uh, but then, but then 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 they get hired uh, by mm-hmm. a school where you know, often they're getting hired and they're the only, you know, black mm-hmm. person or person of color. Uh, and, and then they're expected to, you know, deal with it all themselves. You know, they're, they're expected to be the DEI person now. They're expected yep. to, to, you know, be the educator on everything. And, and, uh, and they're also expected to take it from mm-hmm. everybody, you know, and it often leads to, you know, burnout and leave and quitting and, you know, and sometimes changing careers and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about, you had a study about the role of microaggressions on school psychologists satisfaction in the field. Yeah. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of black school psychologists now. Um, I mean, relative to everyone else, maybe not, but you know, enough to have a, an association and and some conversation and um, and and some cool things happening. I know you recently had a, they recently had a, a, a conference uh, that mm-hmm. sounded like it was super awesome. I don't know if you were a part mm-hmm. of that or not. I was. Oh yeah, it was probably one of my most favorite professional experiences of my life thus far. Yeah. And I was, I, I imagine it cause I was reading sort of the you know, kind of following Twitter during it and after it, mm-hmm. um, I have, I'm having, uh, uh Tira bland on yeah. in July mm-hmm. to talk more about the organization and, and that sort of thing. That's and, awesome. and, uh, and, uh, that fella, is it, uh, Byron? Is that a, yeah. McClure. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I saw, you know, it sound, you know, he just, he just sounds like a, a, a force to be reckoned with, um, yeah. uh, in, in, in kind of, being involved in that and and it just sounded like the coolest thing ever um uh which you know we i'll get into more with with tiara in, in july uh but but and so there's definitely you know supports in that way but once these folks kind of get into you know these individual institutions you know unless, unless they happen to be you know a, a, you know a school where you know it's predominantly black staff which i don't think is common um, I'm guessing mm-hmm. just based on the whole four percent in the field and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what 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 kinds of stuff have you found uh, around microaggressions on school sites? Yeah, yeah. So we're like just beginning, um, like I said a minute ago, to focus on like microaggressions and and kids, and I think yeah. that a focus on school psychologists is part of that, and it's like very yeah. important. Um, and so one of my students and I conducted this study where we were like interested in how exposure to microaggressions might impact how satisfied someone is like with their job, particularly because of what you were just mentioning. Like, first Mm. of all, there's a shortage of school psychs nationwide, right? Like it's already a field where we like don't have enough practitioners. And then if you go look at the racial breakdown, um, it's worse, right? Like our, our field is primarily white women. Yeah. And given the changing landscape of, um, you know, education in our country, like yeah. that demographic does not match um, the students who are serving. And so um, 
we, you know, just I, I think given like my particular lived experience and, and some of the research that we have been involved in and the talks that we've had with other folks in the field, we know that school psychologists are experiencing microaggressions. Like yeah. it's a thing, right? Yeah. Like you, yeah. because of, again, the way that the world is set up and the systems and the way that we're socialized. And so we were interested in like how that might impact how they view the field. Um, hmm. And so, yeah, we conducted a study that was survey based and um, I think we got data from like 93 school psychs, um, wow. like who are practitioners, faculty members. Um, I, I'm not necessarily remembering maybe some of the other qualifications, maybe some were students, but I think most of them were like, were actually practicing psychs, so folks, folks who were finished. Yeah. And we asked them about um, their satisfaction with the field and the degree to which they have been exposed to microaggressions mm. at their jobs. And, and we found that the more people were experiencing microaggressions, um, the less satisfied they were. But what was interesting to your point about people of color working in, in districts that are primarily black and brown, for those who said, okay, yep, like I am experiencing uh, for those who are like working in like heavy black and brown schools, yeah. when they reported a great deal of microaggressions that they were exposed to, microaggressions that they were experiencing, they were much less satisfied with their jobs in comparison to those people of color who were reporting working at districts mm. and schools that were primarily white. Wow. And I think the way that, that we explained that was that, well, like if you're working in a district in a school where most of the students and the staff that you're working with, your colleagues are black and brown. You're not expecting it. Yes. That's, yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. You're not expecting it. You're not used to it. Yeah, yeah. And so when those sorts of things are happening, like it's, it's catching you off guard quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, like that was that was an interesting finding. Yeah. And I think that just like more work needs to be done because school psychs leave particularly black and brown school psychs. They leave the field at an alarming rate, whether it's to go do something that is more geared to our private practice or go work um, in administration, whatever, mm -hmm. right? But given the shortage, we need folks who are prepared and, and willing to be practitioners in our schools um, and work with students and exposure to microaggressions isn't helping. So yeah. um, we thought that that particular study was really important um, totally. and hope that, yeah, like it, it could have an impact on the way that we view the field. Yeah. Wondering about that sort of what you talked about about how how much more of an impact it has when you're working in when it's sort of more unexpected and you're working in you know school that's predominantly you know folks that look like you. Um, mm -hmm. I've 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 had conversations and and read a bit of research and read some of the history and whatnot um, about sort of you know how. Um, You know, racist America has kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, be, you know, it, you know, it's it's. I'm not really good at articulating this. Um, so uh, there, there, there are, you know, black folks that many of them who who, you know, growing up or, and or even now, um, would like to be more white, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, in some way, you know, or, 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 you know, um, or, or at least 
feel, you know, you know, wish they had lighter skin, you know, these kinds of things, um, mm -hmm. and engaging kind of, you know, racist behavior kind of towards each other, you know, as, as sort of a a product of the racist system, you know, it's it's not, it's just it's just they, they, you know, generationally they've been, you know, sort of taught that white is white is right and you know, white gets you further in the world and, and, mm -hmm. and not white does not. And so, you know, and, and their upbringing has been, you know, related to that and, and so on and so forth. And so I was just kind of wondering, I don't know if this came out in this study or just maybe in, in, in your own experience, do, do folks report and talk about microaggressions from folks that look like them? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the word colorism, right? Yeah. I can't think of any researchers off off the top of my head. I actually think one of my colleagues here at Illinois State um, maybe has written a paper on yeah. microaggressions and colorism. But, yeah, like it's a real thing, again, yeah. because we're socialized to believe, right? Like white supremacy isn't just like the KKK and the Proud yeah, Boys yeah. And, and Nazis, right? Like, like white supremacy is more so even just the the ingrainment um or, or 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 the fact that like the way the society is set up to believe and to feel and to experience whiteness as the norm yes right um so not even like yes like whiteness is like the positive qualities like more beautiful smarter right yeah whiteness being associated with those qualities but also just like whiteness is normal yes um, and so, again, like we're all socialized. So that's not just something that white people learn and experience and are brought up with, but um, black folks, too. Right. Yeah. Um, other peoples of color, too. And so I think. Um, yeah, like the, the closer that somebody is to whiteness, the more access they have. Yeah. Right. Um, they are then associated with all those positive qualities that that come with whiteness so yeah there are definitely scholars out there who've written on um colorism in particular mm. um and microaggression and and like the negative effects yeah relevant to that as well yeah yeah wow. um it's a bit of a tangent from microaggressions but I wouldn't mind hearing a little more about uh, why this conference was the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Byron McClure is an he's an he's an innovator. Um, okay. And so I actually remember on Twitter a um, few years back, a year or two back, um, there like being some conversation about like how cool it would be to have a conference for school psychologists, for black school psychologists. Yeah. And I don't want to steal Tierra's thunder. I know she's, she's coming on in a couple of weeks. No, no. Um, and so I, I just like remember that conversation happening. And then like they founded this group, the Black School Psychology Network. And I'm like, oh, this is dope, right? So like we're all really excited about that. Yeah. And then next thing you know, they have a conference that they're planning. Um, and so the minute that they said that that was going to be a thing, I like made sure it was in my calendar, hmm. um, as a, as a academic, <clears throat> we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, right? Like at the beginning of this episode, as an academic who was in a department where I feel really safe, like me and my, my husband, like we decided to come back here because this is home. 
Yeah. Right. Like we were both, he played football. Like we were both student athletes. It's home. Yeah. And nice. so to be in an apartment that's in a department that's home and at the same time feel othered because I'm like, I'm not anymore the only black woman. Like I said, I just mentioned a colleague who's new, who's been here for a couple of years who's a black woman. Um, but for the majority of my time here, I've been one of the only black people, the only black woman, um, the other school psychologist in my department their lived experience just is vastly different from mine. And so I don't have a lot of colleagues every day that I can just like be around and be in community with. I'm really fortunate to have um, a research lab that is primarily women of color Mm. um, because that feeds me, right? Like that I think has really sustained my mental health at work. Yeah. Being able to come in and work with like women of color who are as passionate about this stuff as I am. Yeah. But to not have that at the collegial level is hard. And so yeah, when NASP comes up, like I go and I like make sure that I like get connected with all these black folks that I like have looked up to for so long. Right. Um, and then when they said they're going to do this conference, like bet, like there's no question. It's in my calendar. I'm hmm. going um, they, it was different than any other conference because they centered blackness. And I hope yeah. that Tierra can come on and when she comes on, like she'll speak about that some, but, um, it, they centered blackness and I felt yeah. at home and I felt valued. I think a lot of the work that I do here in my job every day feels different than the work that other colleagues are doing. The way that I interact with my students feel is different. Yeah. You know, like it's it's different. It's just different than the norm. Hmm. It's different than whiteness. And so to go to that conference and see my colleagues interacting with their students that same way. Mm, Yeah, it was it was validating and it was refreshing. I remember I got back. I I got back and had my first class the Wednesday after that conference. And my students like, yo, Dr. Banks, like you good. I'm like, I'm refreshed. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, yeah, like we could tell. Right. Because like I just came back you know, just very much rejuvenated and feeling really good after the space that they created. So just like forever grateful. And I know that they're planning, excuse me, I know they're planning the conference again for next year. And I just hope that it's going to be a thing for years and years to come. Yeah. How many folks were there, do you think, give or take? Oh, a lot. I remember they said the number and I don't remember. And I thought, holy, like, is that many people here? Wow. Um, So, yeah, like I said, ask Tierra Tierra when she's on, but it was... It was a lot. Um, yeah. And it, it felt really good to know that there are that many school psychs, you know, practicing and and, and the, who are professors and who are students. And then to know how many people weren't there. Right. Like there were people that say, oh, like, where are they? They couldn't make it this year. Right. Like as many people that showed up in that space. There were that many more who weren't there. So just wow. just very cool. Yeah. And is there a. Uh... Is there something similar or is it just the same group for students? It's the same group. So from what I understand, they have um, students who like serve on the board as well um, and that help with planning. Um, But yeah, the students were, were, they were present. Nice. They showed up, they were present. Um, I had a couple, how many of my students came? I had three. Oh, okay, great. Students that were able to go this year. um, And next year we expect even more. Um, and then there were a couple, we had a couple of alum who were there too. Mm. So that part was really cool to be able to watch my students like interact with alum, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, very much student driven. Cool. I ask just because it sounds cool, and and I just felt your energy when 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 I brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, I'm I'm headed in a couple of weeks to uh, the Black uh, Behavior Analyst Conference. Okay. Um, in Detroit, um, uh, they invited me to document it on the podcast. Okay. Very yeah. cool. So I'm going to spend three days with microphones talking to people from all walks of life about their experiences there and. And, uh, you know, really stoked. And, and I, I've been hearing from them, from every, everybody that I've heard from that went to the conference last year has been talking like you, the greatest thing they've ever been to yeah. ever, um, in the, sort of the history of gatherings. Um, uh, I was just talking to one of the organizers yesterday and she's like, Ben, you, 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 I want feedback. I want constructive feedback. I want you to tell me what's wrong. I said, Okay, but you got to be prepared for me to tell you there's nothing going to be this wrong because <laughs> yep. everyone says it's the greatest thing ever, and uh, and so I'm I'm humbled that I was invited to come to that. But That's awesome. um, yeah, right on. Um, so uh, kind of as we're kind of wrapping things up again, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, I've just been loving loving <laughs> this info, and and you know I I hope. I can have you back on again as as uh, you, as as kind of more work comes out. Um, for sure. Um, what kinds of what, what are some of the big projects sort of on the horizon for you? Some of the goals for the lab and so on, and just your work in general. Mm. And also, maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, when I was uh, about this uh, African American Studies program you're involved in. Too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, I guess I'll just say that really quickly. Um, it's a growing program at our institution. It doesn't have a history of being funded. Yeah. Um, and so maybe like six, seven years ago, um, our college finally funded it. And nice. um, I have the pleasure of um, of co-directing it with my colleague in history, Torrey Reed. Um, mm. And so it's a it's an interdisciplinary minor program that that undergraduate students can opt into. So um, I think I have appreciated it because it positions me and allows me to be in spaces across yeah. the university campus that I would not be in otherwise. Right, um, true, yeah. And so, yeah, like being in university, just like learning how to navigate and knowing how different things work, I've really learned a lot um, as a co-director. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then in terms of things on the horizon, so <laughs> I mentioned I have 10 dissertation students yeah, yeah, yeah. currently, right? Um, I have a few that are going to be finished soon that are, that are probably going to be defending soon. And then I have a few that I know are going to be added. And so when I first started as an assistant professor, like I hit the ground running really fast, like really fast and was able to get a lot of work um, published in the last six years um, in that role. And because I'm supervising more student research now, I have not been able to write. It's really funny. Like this summer, I'm going to, um, it's not even like my original stuff. Like I'm going to help one of my thesis students from some years ago, yep. finally get a manuscript, um, yep. hopefully get a manuscript published. But I just haven't been able to do my own stuff because, um, you know, the, 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 stu the, the, the number of students that I have, uh, the pandemic, mm. and then I got three babies, right? So like, <laughs> yeah. I was really smart early on and like <laughs> working my butt off, right? Because yeah. I knew like tenure and I knew I wanted to have kids. Yeah. Um, and so the the plan for me, I think the next few years and, and me trying to be promoted to full is I tell my students, you come work with me, you join our lab, your dissertation project, it is expected that you submit it as a manuscript. 
Um, mm. And so I think I am really focused in on a lot of those dissertation projects that we have going on. Like I said, all that are aimed toward microaggression, toward microaggression. Yeah. Um, we have a couple that I mentioned that are on the cognitive consequences. Um, I have a student who's going to explore um, income-driven microaggressions. There's not a ton out there on those. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, we have a couple of students interested in ability, um, a student interested in... Um, queer microaggressions and how teachers respond to them in schools. Um, Another student who's interested on in the microaggressions that Latine adolescents experience. Um, So really leaning into those projects and helping those students like move forward um, so that they're not going to get that ABD, all but dissertation status, right. And be able to move throughout program and then um, converting those into manuscripts, I think is, is my, my, my focus right now um yeah so just really leaning into into those projects um it's interesting right like we are actually writing a chapter on um culturally responsive socially just bcba practices really Um, i have a couple of yeah a couple of um former classmates who went through our program um who also have the dual BCBA license and they do a lot wow. of work with kids with autism. And um, back when I was practicing, I was doing a good deal of work with kids with autism. And so they know I like have this expertise. And so they're writing a book and they asked us to write a chapter. And so that's a really fun project. It's not necessarily like fresh, new, um, original empirical work, yeah. um, but um, a few students and I are, are working on that project this summer as well. So yeah, I got some cool stuff. That's um, super underway. awesome. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Wow. Well, Bria, this is super awesome. It really was. I appreciate you, Ben, seeking me out and allowing me some space to sort of nerd out yeah. um, and talk about the stuff that I'm most passionate about. So yeah. this was this was really cool, and I really appreciate you nice. um, inviting me on. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. So cool. <laughs> You're very right. welcome. See you later. See ya.